Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven disciples as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover." So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. text you have in front of you this morning is a challenging text. I mean, what in the world am I going to do with believers casting out demons, drinking poison, handling snakes, raising people from the dead? Pray for me, would you? It's a challenging text for many reasons. This is one of those passages that is in your Bible, uh, which we refer to as a significant textual variant. A significant textual variant. Uh, It appears here in Mark chapter 16, there is another significant textual variant uh, that is in John chapter 7 and into the beginning of John chapter 8. And when I say a textual variant, here's what I mean by that. I mean that there is discrepancy, there is a lack of congruency amongst various manuscripts that have been passed down through the generations. Okay? There there is a variance, there is discrepancy as it pertains to the text that is in front of us this morning as we see it in various texts that have been handed down through history. It's a challenging text. The end of Mark's gospel is one of the textual variants that poses a challenge in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, many scholars believe that Mark ended his gospel in verse 8, that that was it. Many scholars today, many good men, many faithful teachers, preachers, pastors, theologians, scholars believe that Mark's gospel ended at verse 8. 
which is why you probably have, you, you likely have, some of you may have an older translation, an older uh, translation of the Bible sitting there on your lap, but probably most of you this morning have a more modern translation. And most of the time our modern translations footnote this textual variant in some way. If you have the ESV, which is what I teach and preach from, you'll see brackets right after verse 8. And in that bracket, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. It's actually footnoted if you look down there at the bottom. Uh, The ESV says the two oldest Greek manuscripts and some other authorities omit verse 9 through the end of the chapter. If you have the New American Standard Bible sitting there on your lap, you'll find a footnote or a note there that says later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. Uh, Perhaps you have the Holman Christian Standard Bible on your lap this morning. Uh, You'll see this phrase, other manuscripts omit the bracketed text. Uh, Maybe you have the NIV on your lap this morning, which tells us that the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. In many of our Bibles, the last portion of the Gospel of of Mark is footnoted in some way indicating that what follows is not included in the earliest Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. And this troubles some Christians. Uh, It it troubles many, many non-Christians who would love to poke holes in the validity of the Bible. Uh, You'll know if you've been here for any length of time that I stand firmly resolved in the sufficiency and the authority of the Scriptures. That is a hill that I will die on. And so for some, for some Christians, this poses some uncertainty. It certainly, certainly is fodder for unbelievers, those who hate the things of God, and those who would love an opportunity to poke holes in the validity of Scripture. But even for some Christians, they wonder, should this passage be in our Bible? Does it belong in our Bible? Well, friends, let me just say this. There are weeks worth of study on this particular topic, just textual variants in general. What do we do with them? Where do they appear? Uh, Searching the, the various manuscripts and laying them side by side and trying to synthesize them. There is just a lot here. And so what I want to do, because time is brief this morning, is I just want to give you kind of the, the capsulated version of what's going on here. I want to give you a few arguments against First of all, against verses 9 through 20, uh, being understood as being authoritative scripture. And then I want to give you a few of the arguments that are typically posed for verses 9 through 20, uh, sitting right alongside the rest of the text and being just as authoritative as the rest of the gospel of Mark is. All right? I don't want to confuse you this morning. Uh, I don't want my words to be burdensome. I want to give you enough that you can sink your teeth on it, sink your teeth in it, and maybe we'll encourage you uh, to go study some more on your own. So uh, let me begin this morning by giving you just a few brief arguments against. So those arguments that are not in favor of verses 9 through 20 being authoritative, being an inspired text like the rest of Mark's gospel. A reason number one would be the two oldest Greek manuscripts, those dated uh, around 325 and 340 respectively, do not contain this section, and neither do about a hundred other ancient manuscripts that are translated into a number of other languages. 
And so one of the reasons that scholars would say this is not an inspired, not an authoritative text is because we do not find these verses in the two oldest Greek manuscripts. Okay? A second reason here. According to their writings, almost all the Greek manuscripts known to Eusebius, who died in 339, and Jerome, who died in 419, some of the early church fathers, these guys don't have a whole lot to say about these verses. And so as, as people began to teach the Scriptures, began to, continue, to or, uh, continue translating the Scriptures, some of those early witnesses don't say a whole lot about these verses. Some of them don't say anything about these verses. Another potential argument against verses 9 through 20 as being authoritative and inspired would be that there are actually a couple other alternate endings that are floating around out there. Some manuscripts end at verse 8. Some manuscripts include an ending that is shorter than verses 9 through 20. And other manuscripts include verses 9 through 20 in their entirety. And so amongst the manuscripts, there are various other endings One shorter and some with additions. Uh, Likewise, about one-third of the vocabulary, to be more specific, 18 words that appear in verses 9 through 20 are totally different, not used elsewhere in Mark's gospel. And so some scholars seem to think, well, uh, this is probably written later and probably written by someone else because they use a vocabulary that we don't find in Mark's writing up to this point. Okay? Also, there is an awkward grammatical transition between verses 8 and 9. We ended last week at the end of verse 8. This is where uh, Jesus tells Mary Magdalene to, to go and tell the others that he will meet them in Galilee. But there seems to be a bit of a disconnect if you look at verse 9 because that's not what we see happening here. Instead of continuing the narrative, verse 9 provides a list of the appearances of the Lord, which in general seems to be a brief extract from other resurrection reports that we find at the end of other Gospels. So there seems to be an awkward grammatical transition here between verse 8 and verse 9. And the last reason that I would give you an argument against uh, verses 9 through 20 uh, being understood as being authoritative and inspired is that most contemporary scholars reject these verses as being original. I know it's a lot. I get it. I understand. Okay? Uh, Maybe this will encourage you to go study some uh, on your own this week. But there's, there's a handful, and there are many, many others, but there are a handful of arguments against understanding verses 9 through 20 as being authoritative and inspired. Now, uh, subsequently, let me give you a handful of reasons here in argument 4, verses 9 through 20, being included in the Gospel of Mark, sitting side by side uh, with the rest of the text, and being understood and viewed as authoritative and inspired. Many very early Christian writers mention this passage in their writings. 
And this shows that early Christians were aware, at least to some degree, that this passage was included in the Gospel of Mark. When I say many early Christian writers, many early Christian writers that actually predate the two oldest, most reliable manuscripts that we have. Remember I said those two oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts that we have uh, are from the ballpark of 325 to 340 A.D. Well, there are many Many early Christian authors who wrote and seemed to either allude to or use passages from verses 9 through 20 in their writing that come before 325 to 340 A.D. You won't catch this uh, probably in your notes. Don't worry about it. You can go back and listen to it later. Just listen. It'll probably do you better. Uh, But then I'm going to encourage you to get that pen back out in a second, okay? All right? Papus refers to Mark uh, chapter 16, verse 18, and he wrote about A.D. 100. Justin Martyr's first apology quotes uh, verse 20. He wrote in A.D. 151. Irenaeus, uh, in his writing against heresies, quotes Mark 16, 13, and he remarked on it somewhere in the ballpark of A.D. 180. Hippolytus uh, quoted Mark 16, 18 and 16, 19 in his homily, uh, Heresy of Noetus. Uh, This was in 190 uh, and the subsequent years. The apostolic constitutions allude to 16, uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 15. In two places, uh, they they quote this. This was uh, around the the early, I'm sorry, the late 3rd century or the the early 4th century. So, again, the names I know you're not going to get, the dates you're not going to memorize. Here's what you need to know is that many early church fathers who wrote before those two most reliable manuscripts allude to or quote from uh, seemingly the verses that fall within 9 through 20. Mark 16, 9 through 20. Let me give you a few thoughts that scholars have here uh, as it pertains to this text. Some scholars think that Mark actually wrote a longer conclusion after verse 8 but that somehow, somewhere along the way, that ending was lost. That's a, that's a plausible theory if you think about the fact uh, that these manuscripts were written on uh, very thin paper. And they were rolled up and unrolled and rolled up and unrolled. It took a lot of time, as a matter of fact, to, uh, to transcribe uh, scriptures, and so it wasn't all done in one sitting, so these scrolls will be rolled up and unrolled and rolled up and unrolled, and, and it's possible, some scholars think, that Mark actually wrote uh, an ending that we don't have in our Bible that has been lost and that is not included in our Bible. And so as, as a result of that, here is an attached theory uh, to the lost theory, uh, is that subsequent authors... Christians on down uh, the road, because they struggled with the abruptness, the apparent abruptness of Mark's ending in verse 8, which is basically the resurrection and Jesus telling Mary Magdalene that he'll meet his disciples in Galilee, and then it seems to kind of be over uh, if we don't accept verses verses 9 through 20. And so some scholars think that verses 9 through 20, what you have there in your Bible this morning, in translation, what you have there uh, is is the result of words that have been added later. 
Because Christians who were translating the scriptures, uh, transcribing the scriptures, struggled with the apparent abruptness, what they did is they, is they flipped back to Matthew's gospel and to John's gospel and to Luke's gospel, seeing a more full-bodied conclusion and kind of pulled pieces out of it and assembled an ending that more resembled the endings of the other gospels. And so, for instance, in, uh, in verse 15, uh, if you glance there at your Bible, we'll deal with that this morning. As a matter of fact, it'll probably be the point that we spend the most time on this morning. It appears to be a reconstruction of the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Well, that sounds a whole lot like Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said to his disciples. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all uh, nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so, people who copied, individuals who copied the scriptures later, feeling uncomfortable with the apparent abrupt ending, went and just kind of pulled... uh, pieces of the ending of other Gospels, compiled them, and that is what we have here in verses 9 through 20. That, that is a, a theory that some scholars ascribe to. Friends, let me, uh, this is not an issue to divide over. This is not an issue that calls into question uh, the validity, the authority, the sufficiency of Scripture uh, in any way. But let me tell you where I stand. There are a whole lot of hills that I'm willing to die on. Okay? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Kill me on that hill. Okay? This is not a hill that I'm willing to die on this morning, but let me just tell you where I stand on the issue. I am persuaded at this point in my life and pastoral ministry that Mark's gospel did indeed end at verse 8 did indeed end at verse 8. And this doesn't give me a lot of trouble. If you look at Mark's gospel, Mark writes in a distinctively different way. He writes in a very unique way that is distinct from the other gospel writers. And if we think, okay, well, Mark just kind of, he leaves the ending hanging there. Well, think about where Mark began. Maybe you need to turn back over to Mark chapter 1 to jog your memory this morning, but but Mark doesn't give us the genealogy or the lineage of Jesus Christ. He doesn't even give us the birth of Christ. He starts at Jesus' baptism. And so it doesn't give me a whole lot of heartburn uh, to think that Mark may not have ended his gospel right there at the end of uh, verse 8. We've said a couple of times through our study that, that Mark is kind of a highlight reel gospel writer. Uh, that as you, as you read through and study through Mark's gospel, what you're getting is you're getting the sound bites, the news bites, the, 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 the happening right now. Don't miss this. Breaking news. That's the way that Mark writes. And so he begins with the baptism of Jesus and he ends abruptly. He's given us all the information that we need. Now having said that, God, who has superintended the inspiration and, and the the preservation of the scripture has given us added detail in other gospel accounts. We have Matthew's gospel, we have Luke's gospel, and we have uh, John's gospel. And so we, we have the end of the story as we synthesize the gospel accounts. Uh, but I am persuaded uh, at this point, at least it does not give me heartburn to say uh, that 
that Mark ended the gospel at verse 8. And so what I would subscribe to at this point, that what you have in verses 9 through 20 is later Christian individuals who transcribe the scriptures, pulling from various other places of the, the other gospel accounts and, and compiling them in verses 9 through 20 to give us uh, a bit of a, maybe a smoother landing, okay? This does not give me any heartburn when it comes to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. As a matter of fact, from a doctrinal standpoint, there's, there's nothing that, that is included in verses 9 through 20 that is contrary to the rest of Scripture, Okay? Uh, there are some, there's some interpretive challenges, and we'll have to work through a few of those this morning. But there's nothing here that contradicts the rest of Scripture. And because, for that reason, and secondly, because most, if not every one of your Bibles this morning contain these verses, I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to deal with them. And I'm going to seek to be practical this morning and, uh, and see if we can't squeeze some things out that will help us uh, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay? Did you catch all that? Whew. Man. I'm sweating. Number one, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. Write this down. We see that the resurrection was witnessed. The resurrection was witnessed. Find verses 9 through 13 there in your Bible. Let's look at those again here. Now when he, presumably, this is Jesus here, we've we've gone from the subject being Mary Magdalene to the subject changing in verse 9 to Jesus. So when he, Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with them as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive from Mary Magdalene and had been seen by her, they would not believe. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest. That's the disciples. So not only Mary Magdalene tells the disciples, but these two walking on the way into the country go back and tell the disciples. But again, the disciples did not believe them. And so the the, the point that I want you to get here from this is that the resurrection was indeed witnessed. Jesus really was crucified, dead, and buried. He wasn't just in a coma and then resuscitated uh, there in the tomb and and got out of the tomb. Jesus was really dead, really crucified, and really dead. But he arose, and that resurrection was witnessed. Friends, the resurrection of Christ is the completion of the great work with which he came to accomplish The resurrection is the crowning proof that the ransom for sinners was both paid for by Christ and accepted by the Father. It was proof, proof that ransom had been paid and that that ransom was accepted by the Father. The resurrection is the seal that the serpent's head had been crushed and the victory had been won. That's what we assemble every Sunday morning to celebrate is that the serpent's head has been crushed and our king reigns victorious. As a matter of fact, the scripture ends with Jesus sitting back on his throne from where he originally came, where he was before the foundation of the world. 
But we see these resurrection appearances. First, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. We know from John's gospel, again, if we're synthesizing gospel uh, narratives here, that Mary Magdalene thought that Jesus was a gardener at first. She didn't even know who he was. Mary had been sent out to tell the rest of the disciples that Jesus was risen from the dead. And when she sees him, she thinks that he's a gardener. In that day, her testimony, uh, specifically because she was a woman, would not have been considered reliable. I'm thankful that we've come a long way in our understanding of complementarianism. But in Jesus' day, Mary Magdalene, being a woman, her witness would not have brought with it a whole lot of weight and significance. Hence, the disciples, probably a result of their hard-heartedness in conjunction with the fact that that Mary was a woman and that was the witness that was coming uh, to them, they did not believe. They did not believe. Yet Jesus entrusted her with this task. I love that. Jesus entrusted Mary Magdalene with this task, even though the other disciples would not believe. Mary Magdalene, uh, the last name there likely indicates that she came from Magdala, which was a city on the southwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. We know that Jesus cast out seven demons from her, that's in our text here, uh, and that she became one of his followers. And it was to her, it was to Mary Magdalene before anyone else granted the privilege to behold the risen Christ. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John, the beloved disciple, Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, all of these individuals were alive and well, yet Jesus chose to appear to Mary Magdalene first. Mary had been at one time indwelt by these demons, yet Jesus appeared to her first. Not only would she have been marginalized uh, because she was a woman, but she would have been marginalized as one who had been once demon-possessed. But Jesus appears first to her. And gives her the great high privilege of going and telling the rest of his disciples that he will meet them in Galilee. Well, there are a few things that this appearance to Mary Magdalene, I think, highlights for you. You might want to jot these down in some white space on your outline there. Uh, First of all, Jesus honors and loves faithfulness. Jesus honors and loves faithfulness. Love and faithfulness, devotion and fidelity to him. I mean, Mary Magdalene witnessed uh, the events that took place surrounding the crucifixion. She was present at the mock trial of Jesus when she heard Pilate pronounce the death sentence. She saw Jesus beaten by the Roman soldiers and humiliated and mocked by the onlooking crowd. She was one of the women who stood near Jesus uh, at the foot of the cross as a means of comforting him. And Jesus appears to her first, I think, reminding us that Jesus honors those who love and honor him. Jesus honors those who are fully devoted to him. Matter of fact, back in Mark chapter 10, I know it's been months since we studied that, but Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, there is not one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Jesus says. And so I think Jesus is showing us his great honor for her, uh, that she has shown love and devotion and care and concern for him. And Jesus honors that. He honors that. 
The second thing I think we, we, we note here, or the second thing that I think is highlighted from this appearance to Mary Magdalene, is that Jesus draws near to repentant sinners. Jesus draws near to repentant sinners. Mary is sometimes associated with the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7. She's also sometimes associated with the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Interesting to note, John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 is that second major textual variant that I was speaking about. But neither of these do we know for certain. We do not know if Mary Magdalene was indeed the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet. Neither do we know that she was the woman caught in the act of adultery and about to be stoned. We don't know that for sure. But even if neither are true, if neither of those are true, Mary, just like each of us, was a great sinner by nature. Friends, just in case you didn't know, you're a great sinner by nature. Young people, you're a great sinner by nature. And everyone in between. We came into this world being marred by the effects of the Genesis 3 fall. We are by nature objects of wrath. But God... But God, friends, we are more sinful and flawed in and of ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. In the case of the repentant sinner, God is merciful toward their iniquities, Hebrews 8 tells us, and he remembers their sin no more. Is that a literal statement, by the way? He remembers their sin no more? Give me one of these or one of these. Is that a literal statement? He remembers their sin no more. This is, this is quiz time. All right. Uh-huh. Here's my conclusion. Some of you are right, some of you are wrong. All right. I would submit to you that this is not a literal statement. God cannot forget anything by the nature of his being. What he does do is he refuses to hold it against us. He refuses to charge it to our account. I love that. God is merciful toward the repentant sinner. Merciful toward their iniquities and he remembers their sin no more. Refuses because Jesus is a, is a sacrifice sufficient. He refuses to charge it to our account. And so I think just in this, this whole instance here with Mary Magdalene, we see a couple of things highlighted. One, that Jesus honors love and faithfulness and that Jesus draws near to repentant sinners. But Mary wasn't the only one that Jesus appeared to. Jesus also appeared to two men who were walking along the way. We would understand these two men to be the two men on the road to Emmaus. This is Luke 24. These two individuals here are the two men on the road to Emmaus. And when they saw Jesus... Mary Magdalene thought that Jesus was a gardener. And these two men on the road to Emmaus, to Emmaus thought that Jesus was just another traveler. Just another traveler. Uh, you'll know if you studied that passage that these two men begged Jesus uh, to, to explain to them the scriptures. Matter of fact, at one point when Jesus has already talked with them and Jesus is getting ready to depart, they, they beg him to stay and to talk more about these things. And the, the whole story concludes 
in Luke 24, verse 32, with these two men saying, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, when he opened the scriptures to us? This is the second witness to the resurrected Lord Jesus. First to Mary Magdalene, second to the two men on the road to Emmaus who he walked through the scriptures with, beginning with the Old Testament prophets, showing them God's redemptive plan, culminating in a crucified Messiah, such that when he left them, their hearts burned. And the third appearance that we see was to Jesus' disciples. And we'll turn our attention there now. Because what we see in the disciples is an obstinance, is a hard-heartedness, a refusal to believe. But the three individuals that we see, Jesus appeared to first, Mary Magdalene, the two men on the road to Emmaus, and the third appearance was to Jesus' disciples. We see the resurrection was witnessed. Number two, write this down. The messengers are flawed. The messengers are flawed. Look at verse 14. Afterward, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves. So it wasn't just the testimony from others coming to the disciples. It was Jesus himself. And he came to them as they were reclining at the table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Friends, the messengers are flawed. So are we. As messengers in our day. As messengers appointed at this time. For this hour. We also are flawed. This just reminds me that God uses ordinary, sinful, sometimes stubborn men, and I say men generically for people, men and women, to accomplish his purposes. Ordinary. Ordinary people. Plain Jane. Relatively simple people. I think about... A couple of Jesus' disciples is there before the the Sanhedrin uh, early on in Acts. And the, the Jewish religious council looking upon them and taking note that these men, though they were unschooled, unlearned, untrained, not sophisticated by the evaluation of the world, but they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. And so, yes, we see the messengers are flawed here. Matter of fact, their, their stubbornness and their hard-heartedness keeps them from believing. When I say keeps them from believing, they're culpable. Okay? It's not as if they're somehow separated from their disbelief. They lacked faith in the plan. I mean, how many times in our study of Mark's gospel did Jesus tell his disciples that he was going to be crucified? Several, very clearly, and in other places he alluded to it. But Jesus had made clear to his disciples that he was going to be killed, that he was going to die, but that he would rise again on the third day. And yet these fellows still struggled to believe. They lacked faith in the plan. They lacked faith in the plan. They were stubborn in heart. They refused to believe. Friends, what they were doing is they were letting their feelings drive the bus. In this moment, as, as, their, as their Messiah, or so they thought, laid cold and dead in a tomb, 
These men let their feelings drive the bus. Oh, he's dead. Everything that we lived for for the last three years, everything that he taught us, everything that he trained us for, everything that he said, it's all for naught. They were letting their feelings drive the bus. Friends, every single one of us has feelings. Feelings are a good thing. God has feelings, okay? You can't read the Bible and not understand that God feels things. God gets angry at times. How about Genesis 6-5? When God saw how wickedness man had become, it angered him at heart that he even made man. God has feelings, It's a part of what it means to be made in the image of God that you have them too. Let me just remind you, they make a much better caboose than they do an engine. Don't let your feelings sit in the driver's seat. Your feelings will drive you down roads you don't want to go down. The disciples' refusal to believe is highlighted three times in our text. First, when Mary Magdalene comes and tells them that the Lord is risen, we see they would not believe it. Secondly, when the two men on the road to Emmaus come back and tell the disciples, we hear they did not believe them. And lastly, Jesus himself appears to the disciples as they're reclining at the table and he rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. It's safe to say that the disciples were equal opportunity unbelievers. Didn't matter who came and told them. Their hard-heartedness loomed in front of them. What do we learn from this? We learn that we're typically unwilling to believe what runs counter to our prejudices. we're, We're typically challenged. We typically struggle to believe what runs counter to our presuppositions or our preconceived ideas. Secondly, we're prone to forgetfulness. Again, Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples that he would rise again on the third day. And we're just as prone to forgetfulness. That's why I think Peter tells us in his letters in the back half of the New Testament, it's no problem for me to remind you of these things again. And then he goes on. Why? Because we're prone to forget. We're prone to forget. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he rebukes them. He rebukes them. Remember, Jesus' disciples were Jesus' plan A to take the gospel to the rest of the world. We'll see that here in verse 15. But here are these men uh, mourning the loss, stubbornly refusing to believe that he's even been risen, even though multiple eyewitnesses have come and, and validated that fact to them. And so Jesus rebukes them. Jesus rebukes them. Friends, it's possible that some of you here this morning need a rebuke from the Lord Jesus because you are stubborn and obstinate and hard-hearted and you refuse to believe. You refuse to take God at his word. Maybe you're a Christian and you struggle with hard-heartedness and obstinance to take God at his word, to believe God's word, to put it into action that's what it means to believe God's word, by the way. It does not matter what you know intellectually, if that's all you know. If it is not expressed in your living, you do not believe it. Maybe it's that you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins. That you've never come to true, saving, abiding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. 
Well, here this is a solemn rebuke, friends. If you do not believe, and we'll see this two verses from now, you stand condemned. If you believe, you'll be saved. If you do not believe, you'll be condemned. We see the messengers are flawed. And while we don't glory in their failure, while we don't glory in their disbelief, it is a good reminder that we are more like them than we are dislike them, and God's mercy is greater still. God's mercy is greater than all my sin. Number three, we see the call is clear. The call is clear. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Remember when Jesus called his disciples, he said to them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That was the call back in Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Come, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ would have us know that the salvation of the, 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 the gospel of salvation is to be offered freely to all mankind. That the glad tidings that God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5.8, that those truths and those realities are to be proclaimed freely to every creature everywhere. Friends, Let me remind you, we are not justified in making any exception or giving ourselves any exemption from this great high calling and task. Jesus' words are a command, they are not a suggestion, and we have zero, zero warrant for failing to obey. We must not shrink back from the task of proclaiming the gospel to the whole creation. Look at verse 15 there. Go into the world. Go into all the world. That's the location. That's all-encompassing. Go into all the world. And then we're called to this task to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's the commission. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And it's one that we must not shrink back from. There are only three options given to us, friends. We go, we send, or we disobey. And I would add a caveat to that and say, we go, or we go and send more locally, or we disobey. Because we've all been called to go. We've all been called to go. You know, we, we see the Schraders and other missionaries who I am so thankful for, who have given up all the creaturely comforts that were afforded to them here in the great thriving metropolis of Cape Girardeau, Missouri, to go live in the bush among a people who they share nothing in common with. Until, God willing, those people come to know Jesus savingly, and then they have most in common with them. But regardless of whether you go to the bush or not, you are called to go. You're called to go to the the man or the woman who shares a cubicle next to you. You're called to go to your neighbor that lives next door. You're called to go to the mama who you meet at the mall or the park for a play date. You're called to go uh, to your college uh, suite mate and to the people in the university center and the people that sit next to you in class and your sports teams and your sororities and your fraternities and your high school sports. And don't think for a second that, that Christian organizations can't be a ministry field. Friends, the local church, as in the bricks and sticks we're in, this is a ministry field. Why? Because some amongst us this morning are as lost as last year's Easter egg. 
So don't just think because I'm involved in campus outreach or FCA or, or this ministry or even involved in ministries in the local church that there are not opportunities to share the gospel. Oh, there are. There are. Henry Ironside once said, Interest in missions is not an elective in God's university of grace. It's something with which every disciple is expected to major. And I think if we're honest, we like to talk about missions, we like to talk about evangelism, but we don't much fancy the prospect of going ourselves. We'll shove ink on paper at opportunities and at people so that they can go, but in our heart of hearts, we don't much fancy the prospect of going ourselves. We like to talk about evangelism, but when push comes to shove, we're all too often content to recoil like the hermit crab right back into our shell. And friends, I, this is me. Don't think for a New York minute that because I stand up here in front of you every Sunday that I don't get sweaty palms and butterflies when I think about sharing the gospel with the lost. Oh, Satan would love to keep us for a myriad of reasons from being obedient. But what if I get asked a question I don't know the answer to? Or what if they poke holes in my faith? What if they come and tell me, you think you have the Bible, but Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 are a textual variant? Go. Proclaim the gospel. Jesus Christ took on flesh, living, perfect, substitutionary sacrifice, crucified, dead, buried, risen, ruling, reigning, soon returning. You don't have to have a PhD in missions to do it. You just have to be obedient. You have to be obedient. I, friends, I know we're at our time, and I have been trying really hard uh, over the last uh, handful of weeks uh, to keep my time reined in. Can I go a few extra minutes this morning? Well, thank you, thank you. Here's what I know. I know that there are probably many of you who immediately looked at your watch, and that's fine, I understand, and thought, they don't speak for me. Just hang with me for a few moments here. Okay? Years ago, as a young Christian involved in the ministry of campus outreach, I came to Christ through the ministry of campus outreach, as a matter of fact. My freshman year of college and on summer projects, learning and growing uh, how to uh, love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and how to share my faith, and how to study my Bible, and, and uh, how to get my testimony down you know, to a, to a two, three-minute presentation that I could share with a lost person at the university center you know, over, over the table. But uh, anyway, in, in the midst of all that training early on in my Christian life, uh, a document was put in front of me, and that document is entitled, A Parable of Fisherless Fishermen. A Parable of Fishless Fishermen. Let me just, I was going to read it front and back, but I don't have time. Let me, let me just get it started because you'll get the gist here, okay? This is a parable. Parable is a story, right? This is extra biblical. It's not from your Bible. Just, I think, aptly describes the general state. I'm not making a, an exhaustive or an exclusive uh, statement, but the general state of, of the church. And the church isn't sticks and bricks, it's us. And so... Maybe this will sting a little bit in a positive way. It sure does me. Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen, right? Come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. 
And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes of fish. And the fish were very hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen went in meetings and talked about how to call fish. They talked about the abundance of fish. They talked about how they might go about the the fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing really means. They defended fishing as an occupation. They declared that fishing is always to be the primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. Further, they said, fishing, the fishing industry, exists by fishing like fire exists by burning. They loved slogans like, fishing is the task of every fisherman, and every fisherman is a fisher, and a fisherman's outpost for every fisherman's club. They sponsored special meetings they called the fishermen's campaigns, and the month for fishermen to fish they sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide congresses or, or uh, conferences to discuss fishing and promote fishing and to hear about all the ways of fishing, about all the new fishing equipment, fish calls, and where new fish bait was discovered. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings that they called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, is fish. And for another page and a half, just goes on and on and on like that. We talk about the need is great. We talk about the fact that statistically, a person drops into a Christless eternity about every 1.7 seconds. And then we go back to our cozy homes and have our cozy lunches and live our cozy little lives. We pull into our garages. We shut the garage door before the, the car has even stopped. And we get out of our car and we walk into our home. And we forget that a lost and dying world lives out here. Well, we're happy to talk about fishing. But are we fishing? Are we fishing? Friends, the call is clear. Let me just wrap everything up here. The stakes are high. Write that down. Number four, the stakes are high. Look at verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. A whole lot of things that I want to say here. This has been a text that has been uh, taken grossly out of context and has been used as a premise for baptismal regeneration, that a person has to be baptized to be saved. Friends, that is not what this text or Acts chapter 2 and other texts uh, that mention baptism in relative close proximity to conversation about salvation means. Whoever believes and is baptized is saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Uh, Notice there after the comma that whoever penned these words does not say, but whoever does not believe and is baptized, will be condemned. I think the baptism that's being spoken of there is talking about a spiritual baptism, being baptized by uh, the indwelling Holy Spirit that takes place at conversion, 
Not that we should neglect water baptism. If you have come to know Christ savingly and you have not been baptized, I encourage you in obedience to the risen, ruling, reigning Lord Jesus Christ who gave us the example here in his earthly life and ministry was baptized that you too ought to follow suit as an outward demonstration of an inward reality a way to proclaim or profess your faith in Christ to the congregation who there has the responsibility to help hold you accountable to walking with Jesus, you need to be baptized. But what I want you to get here is the stakes are high. The person who believes is saved. The person who does not believe will be condemned. There's no other alternative. That's it. That's it. Number five, write this down. The power is real. The power is real. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is a challenge here. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They'll lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Friends, I think what we see here is just a clear reality that took place as a validation to the apostles' early ministry. They'll cast out demons, they'll speak in new tongues. We see that in Acts chapter 2 as the, as the, the, uh, the nucleus of the, the early church is, is growing, is being birthed and born and is growing there. We see speaking in tongues. By the way, speaking in tongues was, was never some, uh, some gibberish that was just preached and then somebody over here can, uh, can, can decode that. When, when people spoke in tongues, they spoke the gospel message in a tongue, and that tongue was a real, discernible, and definable language that a people group spoke and used, who, when that gospel was preached in that tongue, was heard clearly by them. It was not what we see abused today. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. Only a couple of places that we see this. Luke 10, 19, uh, Jesus talks about this in connection to his disciples. Uh, and then the only other clear indication would be potentially Paul uh, after he's shipwrecked on the island of Malta as he's gathering firewood and he's bitten by the serpent there. Matter of fact, when the native people there on Malta saw the creature, the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. In other words, what sin has he committed? He's been bitten by this snake. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, Paul, however, shook the creature off into the fire, and he suffered no harm. It's the only clear indication that we see there. We see if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Um, this, is, this is hard, uh, because we don't see this taking place in Scripture anywhere. As a matter of fact, uh, potentially even Matthew 4, 7 applies here. Don't put your Lord God to the test. Uh, we, we know that there are congregations in Appalachia and other places today that still practice this snake handling and drinking of cyanide. And there's a pretty large cemetery out back. <laughs> Don't put your Lord God to the test. Jesus didn't. Satan says, throw, just throw yourself off the temple, uh, top of the temple here. It's foolishness. Lastly, they'll lay their hands on the sick and they'll recover. Friends, these signs served as a validation of the apostles' gospel ministry. They're not normative in the church today. I believe these sign gifts were given at a particular time to a particular group of people, i.e. the apostles, and for a very particular purpose. 
Uh, I'm a cessationist. If you want to talk about that later on, I, I don't believe that these sign gifts are any longer necessary, nor do I believe that they are normative for uh, today. We have the completed canon here, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We have everything that we need for life and godliness right here, okay? God's given us everything that we need, okay? Uh, lastly here, let's, let's wrap it up. The results are sure. The results are sure. We see the resurrection witness. We see the messengers are flawed. We see the call is clear. The stakes are high. The power is real. Uh, we still have power today, right? Romans 1.16, by the way. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and then the Gentile. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I said last week, as you proclaim the gospel message, as long as it's faithful to the gospel message presented to us in the Bible, it is as if the risen Lord Jesus Christ is proclaiming the gospel through you, and it goes forth with power. Power. Okay? So we still have power today. Don't go home and drink any poison. All right? And then lastly, we see that the results are sure. Look at verses 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken uh, these things to them, he was taken up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. We see that Jesus was taken up into heaven, that he sat down at the right hand of the throne uh, of his father. The writer of Hebrews talks about that. We talked about the fact that his sitting means that his work is complete. It's finished. That does not mean that he's not actively working in you today. He, he intercedes. He mediates. He advocates. But his sacrificial work is finished. He is seated. And then the, gospel, or the, the disciples go out and they preach the gospel everywhere. Friends, this means that they did not remain together in little holy huddles, in comfortable Christian groups, they went out. And I want to encourage you, we need to do that. Don't get content in your little Christian uh, huddle, and your little holy huddle. Make sure that you are rubbing shoulders with the lost. There is no impact without contact. Okay? God chose not to write it uh, in, in, the, uh, in the clouds. He chose to put it on the lips of his, uh, his children. Go proclaim. Go proclaim. As we come together on Sunday mornings, we are filled so that we can go out and minister to a dying world. Spurgeon once said this, and I'll leave it at this. He said, I don't want you, to, or I don't want you all to feel that it is not the end, though it may be the beginning, talking about us coming together in corporate worship. He said, I don't want you to feel that it's not the end of the Christian life to come and hear sermons. Rather, when you're done... Scatter as widely as you ever can the blessing which you got for yourself. The moment you find the light and realize that the world is in the dark, run away with your match and lend it to somebody else that they might have light. Friends, how are you doing there? How are you doing there, Christian? Are you being obedient or do you need a rebuke? Starts right where you are. Be faithful and grow where you're planted. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Uh, your word. Thank you for this glorious gospel of Mark. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we have taught through it over the uh, previous months, that you would impress your truth indelibly on the hearts of your people. Uh, God, I pray that we would know you more and that we would love you uh, in a greater way as a result of what we have seen and know to be true uh, through our study of Mark's gospel. Fan the affections of our hearts into flames. Send us out. Scatter us out even today, Lord, we've gathered together, but we want to leave here and scatter uh, into the world uh, that Jesus might be proclaimed and that he might be proclaimed in great power. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.